Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26? I'm going to read from the New International Version this week. Um, normally, I knew, use the New American Standard Bible. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 20, through 26. The title of our sermon is Be Reconciled to Your Brother. Now, you heard an announcement that the elders have proceeded to formal discipline with a member of our community this morning. And so you might think I've chosen this uh, subject and this title because of that. And the fact is, I haven't. Uh, the reason I've chosen this text is because, like many of you, I went to family reunions this summer. <laughs> and most of the people at my family reunions are confessing Christians. And uh, I was very surprised this summer that my brother David and I had no tension don't worry, since then there's been some, but at the reunion there was no tension between David. In fact, everybody in our family was thought the whole thing extraordinary. Um, but then we had the Taylor reunion and some came. And then yesterday, or day before yesterday, I dealt with a matter where I knew there had been hanging fire for a number of months with another pastor that I've worked with in the past, not here, but in other work. And uh, so we finally talked, and uh, let's just say the first conversation didn't go well. Then I opened up the Bible and I read this and other parts of uh, these exhortations as they appear in the book of Luke, not in Matthew, and uh, had another hack at it. <laughs> but that time I started by asking for forgiveness and admitting my sins. Now, I want us this morning to think about the issue of peace, but I want to start out by saying peace is not the absence of conflict. That is not peace. I'll never forget a couple in our church in Wisconsin uh, where it, be it became evident to Mary Lee and me that the man was committing adultery with another woman in the church. And after praying and trembling as a young pastor about what I was supposed to do, it was obvious the way they touched each other, the way they hung at each other's houses with their children, everything about it just, ugh. but they were at the center of the church. They were leaders, and I was 30 years old, wet behind the ears and scared out of my wits. Well, finally, the Lord gave us an opportunity, gave me an opportunity to speak into the life of the woman involved in adultery. And that led to me having to meet with my wife with the other couple where the husband was involved in the adultery. And uh, what I remember distinctly was that during that conversation, that man and his wife both told us that they never, ever fought. Well, being somewhat of a fighter myself... I felt completely condemned, convicted, guilty, and disgusting when I heard that from them. And so after we got done meeting with them so the husband could tell the wife that he had committed adultery against her, and guess what? There was a little fighting there. I said to my wife afterward, Mary Lee, I said, you know, I can't believe that they never fight. Because, and I, it, it went unstated, because you and I do. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to say that to my wife. And my wife, who's not, generally, she's a very reasonable woman. Generally, she does not make 
uh, harsh comments. She looked at me and she got this look of utter disgust on her face. And she said, of course, they don't fight. They don't even care about each other. Now, why am I telling that? Well, because that's the condition, I believe, of most churches today. They say they have peace because they don't care about each other. There's no intimacy. There's no family life. There's nothing, nothing even approximating anything you see in, in the New Testament. You can't even conceive of the Apostle Paul writing to two people in the congregation, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree with one another in the Lord because who are you, Doi and Syntyche, anyhow? And what's their problem and why is he bringing it up publicly? And yet this is just an incidental manifestation of the organic, intimate, blood and guts family life of the New Testament church. And Philippians is the most upbeat book, and that's where that comes from. That's not even getting into Galatians. It's not even getting into Timothy, the pastoral epistle. So you understand, as I speak about peace and being at peace with each other in a church, we have been acculturated to thinking that Churches are places where you put on a tie, you show up Sunday morning, it's the religious thing. And if there's any problems in that church, consumer preference takes you to another church where they don't have any problems. But of course, at that church, the truth is there's no intimacy, no community, and certainly, certainly no ministry of the Holy Spirit, which humbles us. And certainly no need to ask for forgiveness, because that's really humiliating. And what? What? It's not a church. Do you understand that? They didn't have a marriage. They had a marriage where they could brag about never fighting with each other as they committed as he committed adultery for years. And in that context, he said, well, we never fight. And she said, well, we never fight. And I felt intimidated. So. I'm trying to recalibrate you as we come into this. It's not a sign of sin and weakness and failure that I'm preaching this sermon. It's not a sign of sin and weakness and failure that we have a formal disciplinary case before our church. It's not a sign of failure that your heart hates your wife and your wife hates you. None of that is a failure. None of it. It's not a failure, okay? It's a sin. And that's who you are. It's always who you've been. It's who I am. It is even who Wayne Huck is. And it's even who Ann Wagner is. And those of you who remember it, it was who Rita Cuffey was. There's only one man that that hasn't been who he is, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's why we worship him and none of us. The only failure would be if we denied these things and if we shoved them under the carpet and if we refused to be intimate. And if being intimate, we refused to receive and to give forgiveness and instead chose to go to a megachurch where we could blissfully settle into anonymity. That would be a failure. So let's read the word of God. What does it say? It says this. Jesus is speaking. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And he's in a series. He's starting a series of you have heard, but I say. 
Now, as I read this, I want to make one thing clear. This is not Jesus throwing out the Old Testament and bringing in the new. This is Jesus showing the meaning of the Old Testament. He's not replacing Old Testament laws with New Testament laws. What he's doing is taking the pastors and seminary professors of the time, and he's showing them that all the laws, all the rules, all the petty rules that they've surrounded God's character, which is what the law is, with all of those things are absolutely bankrupt because they exist to protect people from the conviction of sin and from looking at their hearts. You know, it is exactly what goes on at church after church in this country where people get dressed, get their suit pressed, put on a nice starched white shirt, have a nice tie, not a bow tie, a nice tie, wash their car Saturday afternoon, have the kids' hair all brilled clean or whatever you call it, moose back, and they walk in like this, and everybody says, isn't that a godly family? All right. And the Apostle Paul, in his letters, Jesus in his teaching are always going for the heart. And Jesus here is saying, look, all these laws of the Old Testament really do have meaning. And the meaning is not about whether you have a tie on and how you appear on Sunday morning and whether you keep your mouth shut when you hate that woman sitting next to you. It is about that hatred in your heart. So no amount of dress up and makeup from Nordstrom's can change you. You are who you are, and until you look interiorly, until you look into your heart, until you stop being a hypocrite and, and saying, well, I didn't murder him, I just looked daggers at him, and who can fault me for that? I mean, I am human. So it's not him throwing out the law and replacing it, it's him saying, hey, you guys, you blew it, you've surrounded that law with a bunch of petty rules that make you feel self-righteous, and that's a bunch of bunk. Here's the law. And he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. That was sort of a presbytery, a group of pastors of the time, priests. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may get thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Before we look at the nature of true righteousness in connection with murder, hatred, anger, and name-calling, we need to again see that this is not a replacement of the Old Testament law. It's not that murder is okay. It's not that what really matters is what's in your heart, but not what your body does. Jesus isn't setting up that false dichotomy. Now, I grow weary dealing with the subjects that I have to deal with again and again in our culture. I do grow weary. I grow weary of pointing out the errors of our day. I would like to move on to new errors. 
But we are the same, and we have the same editorial writers and the same talking heads on television, the same professors, and they are committed to the sins intellectually and the stupidities of our day. And so at the time of Christ, when he said, you've heard what it said about murderers, everybody would like recoil in horror. And they'd say, yes, anybody who kills somebody should die. And so Jesus had something to build on. And you know what's coming. We don't. Why? Well, because we live in a time when people deny that man is the only creature that bears the image of God. We live in a time when I took a class in environmental ethics at UW-Madison, where in that class I was taught how many people in this country believe a redwood tree should have the same standing in a court of law as a person. And you know how many people believe that man is just one among many species and that to give preference to him as opposed to dogs and cats and dolphins is to be guilty of the new thought crime of speciesism. Now, this is a very real enemy, and it needs to be taken very seriously. This is the reason why when a quarterback in the NFL does horrendous things that God hates to his dogs, make no mistake about this, the whole country is up in arms that that same man could pay for his wife to kill their unborn child. And in some circles, he would even be commended. And he would certainly not go to jail. Now think about this. A dog and a human being made in the image of God. This is the world we live in. And so over here a little ways, there's a place, a business, a charity that runs by taking money for killing little babies in their mother's wombs. This is what we have in our city. And we all live as if it's not happening, and it doesn't matter. I was thinking this last week about what would happen if all of a sudden the U.S. Supreme Court said that Christians are not completely persons under the law. Not blacks, not unborn babies, Christians. And they began to preside over the execution of 1.35 million of us every year. They're taken down onto the public square and executed. Do you think anybody would show up to protest? Do you think there would be editorials written? Do you think there may even be armed rebellion? But you see, unborn children have no voice. There's none of them hanging around erecting a Holocaust museum. Because by definition, they're gone. They are the most helpless and most defenseless and most voiceless human being. And so as we go into a time of studying the deeper meaning of the law of God that you shall not murder, we have to deal with the fact that as a nation, we live off the blood of the unborn children, of the newborn defective, of the older and feeble. We live off the blood of men and women made in the image of God. 
You say, how do you mean we live by it? Well, some of us actually live by it. There are people that take money and do this. There are charities that live off of it. United Way. Our tax dollars are used for the organization Planned Parenthood that kills unborn children in this city. They take our taxes, my taxes, and they use it to help that place. It would be like your tax dollars going to Treblinka. All right. But it's not just that money is trading hands. It's that the careers, the convenience, the lives of people all over our nation. We're now dealing with an incidence rate of somewhere between one third and one half of all women of childbearing age in this country. You know, you don't have one point three five million every year without it adding up. (laughs) And what we have as a nation is we have people. You and I who have certain aspects of our life more convenient because we don't have an unwanted child who's the daughter of our sister who's unwed. And, you know, and that would put a certain strain on our family and we'd have to take them into our home. And and you understand what I'm saying. In other words, the wealth of this country, much of it is built on the killing and the death of unborn children. Do you see this? Our convenience, the number of children, you go to Africa, it's real clear. You go to Africa and what you see is a man, this man that David Wagner told us just died, who was on the faculty of the Theological College of Central Africa in Zambia. How many children did this man have? He had somewhere 25, 35 children. How did he get 25 to 35 children? Well, it wasn't him and his wife. What was it? It was that all his relatives were dying because of AIDS. So guess what? He had the Christian, but also the African obligation to take those children in and to care for them. Now, think about that. What would happen in America if all the unwanted children were living instead of dead? What would happen is many of us would have obligations that had a name and an age who lived in our homes and who were raised, being raised in covenant families and who were really inconvenient. (laughs) I mean, you know, Lizzie, you're not inconvenient. Lizzie has just come to live with us, and she's not our child. But that's not all the truth. You really are. It's nice to have somebody living with us that you like. Now, listen, we love Lizzie. That's why I can joke like this. But all of you know someone who has lived with your parents or with you who you didn't really like. Do you understand? Murder in our nation of unborn children has caused convenience in our homes. My home, your home. Now, you say, well, why are you going on and on about this? We have visitors this morning. (laughs) Listen, because Jesus said, you have heard it said that you shall not murder. And everybody withdrew in horror. Yeah, we are not supposed to murder. And he said to them, why aren't you supposed to murder? And they all quoted Genesis 9 where it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he created them. But we, even the Pope is against capital punishment. (laughs) You know, forget what Genesis 9 says. What did God know anyhow? And so we become inured to murder. And our convenience is built on the blood. 
And it has become a form of entertainment for us. So that our children grow up killing people in video games. And the more speed the processor has, and in fact, get it off the processor, let's take it to a video card. Then the more real it is, and the more you can get the adrenaline rush of shedding the blood of men made in the image of God. This is who we are. And if it's not the video games, it's the movies. And if it's not the movies, it's the novels. We are a nation that luxuriates in the shedding of the blood of men made in the image of God. And so now I have the job of trying to make you see how awful it is when you call somebody a fool. And I'm a fool to try. (laughs) Because you don't think it's awful that children are growing up playing games of murder. And the more realistic the face is when you hit it with the bullet, the better the game is. And this is who we are. This is who I am. This is who you are. Now, does this mean I'm against guns? No, actually, I'm not. But until I was about 24, I was. I grew up in a home where we weren't even allowed to have squirt guns. And I married a woman whose father was a pacifist. So when it came time for Vietnam, I registered for the draft as a conscientious objector because I was a pacifist. And then I heard a godly man one day say that when his wife and children are attacked, the man who values life is not the one who refuses to take life, but the one who dies in the protection of the innocent. That that man is the man that respects life. And that the man who respects life is the man who takes the life of a murderer. Because he respects life. And that's the penalty. And then one night I was over at my sister's house. And she's single. And she lives in Chicago. And I was over at my sister's house. And there was a man there who was very angry at my sister. And he began to be belligerent. And I was seven years, six years younger than she was. So I was kind of like insignificant in the scheme of things. But then... I looked at him and I told him to stop. He got more belligerent and it began to threaten violence against my sister. And in that moment, I knew that if he tried to take my sister's life, I would kill him. Or I would die. But I was a pacifist. And then I realized what God said when he said, whoever sheds the blood of man by man must his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he created him. And I realized that it was not uh, a denial of Scripture, but that this was simple submission to what God himself decreed and is recorded in Scripture in the most explicit terms. And so Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And the first step is for us to hear that it is said, you shall not murder. And this means that we look at what goes on in our homes with our computers, with our movies. 
You know, we look at the books we read. We look at Planned Parenthood in our community. We look at the nursing homes. You know, and we look. You know, we're not these Teflon people who have the ability of seeing nothing. We look. We look. And then we remember that Jesus said he came to save sinners. And we remember that he has mercy on nations and not just individuals, that for the sake of ten. That with Nineveh, I love this. I mean, this applies to the NFL quarterback, right? What does it say about Nineveh? Remember, Jonah is just angry after Nineveh repents. He wishes that they had gotten what they deserved, you remember? And after he's having a pity party and God deals with him, what does God say? God says, shouldn't I have mercy on these people? And then God says what? Not to mention their animals. (laughs) And so God is merciful to nations that have their hands washed in blood of innocence. And we need to plead for that. We need to do everything we can in our lives to hate the explicit public uh, obvious sin that Jesus starts to build this truth on. Okay? And that's what that's the remedial teaching that Jesus didn't have to do, but I do have to do today. Alright? It's under what he's about to say. Then he says what? He says, but I tell you, what does he tell us? He says, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar. Okay, so we take murder in all its forms, all its all its many perversities, all of its manifestations, and we say, I will grieve, I will mourn, I will not entertain myself, I will not be complicit in it, let alone do it myself, okay? Then we move over and say what? Well, if our righteousness has to be higher than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, then we say, not only will I avoid shedding the blood of people, but I will also not be angry with my brother and not call my brother a fool. And now this is where it gets really, really hopeless. Turn around. Those of you who are not new here, turn around and look at the people here. Look at them. Come on, look at them. Look at them. Look around. Look around. Now, I defy you to tell me that you can't tell me a negative thing about every single person you just looked at. I mean, seriously. We are, we are like criticism manufacturing factories, you know? The idea that we murder people when we get angry at them and call them fools is so depressing, (laughs) you know? I mean, it's awful. Now, do you recognize the truth of what I'm saying? You know, come on, come on, be honest. Do you recognize the truth of it? It's impossible to hear what Jesus says without being completely condemned. Every one of us here this morning, even the smallest of us, is a murderer. It's what we are. 
Because why? Well, because we've been angry at one another and because we've called each other fools. It is a very, very grave situation for me every Sunday morning as I drive here. That's why I'm trying to move to the west side. (laughs) Because I have to go through two roundabouts. And if you've ever driven or lived in Massachusetts as I have, you know that people in Indiana don't quite get it. And so what am I doing as I drive? I'm really killing them. I really am, because they are fools, and I am angry. There's no question in my mind that it's been God's mercy that my car has never killed somebody. And many of you, you're the same way. With women, it tends more to be envy and jealousy and protectiveness of their children or the cleanliness of their home. Men process things sort of more gutturally. Women process it more domestically. And I will not apologize for making sexual stereotypical statements. No. Generally, things are true about men that aren't true of women and vice versa. And if you haven't learned that, Come back. We have more. (laughs) And so women aren't godly and men are, are evil. We're both wicked, depraved, the product of the fall. And so how do women call each other fools? Well, generally, it's by being critical of the way another woman raises her children or shoves her children forward to receive public acclaim. The way another woman uses her home in such a way as to show that she's better than you are. The way another woman cops a posture as being godly when you know a doggone right she's just as sinful as you are. The way another woman brags about her husband, about her children. The way another woman, and it goes on and on. This is how women live. Now, I'm not saying all of you who are women are that way, and I admit I'm not a woman, so I probably don't really know women. Certainly, it's... Not at all true of my wife or any of my daughters. So if you're going to be honest, you're going to admit to me and to one another that every single person in this room you know, you can immediately spit out a criticism that shows that you have called them a fool in your heart at one time or another. Some of the people here, you're calling a fool all the time. I was talking to Ben this morning, comes from a family of 11 siblings. How do you figure that if you grow up with 11 siblings, that there isn't one of them that you just settle in to him being a fool for the rest of your life? And many of you have a family member that you just despise. And you've repented of it so many times that you're just tired of repenting because repenting is so humiliating. And why repent again? I mean... You know, if your brother sins against you, you should forgive him 70 times 7 if he asks you to, but God won't. I mean, God's grace is not as big as, because after all, God's perfect. He can't bring himself to forgive us as many times as we should forgive each other because we're sinners and we can forgive each other, but God's holy. And so he can't keep forgiving us. And so either we get our act together, finally, or we give up in being sensitive to sin because after all, God can't forgive us 70 times 7. You know, 
And so you just take certain people in the church and in your home, people that live in your apartment, people you're married to, and you just say, they're a fool and I'm done. Right? Right? I'm just done. And you have murdered them. And Jesus says, if this is the case with you, what are you supposed to do? He says, what? He says, I don't want your worship. I don't want you singing to me. I don't want you giving me money. I don't want you eating my body and blood. I don't want you praying. I don't want you listening to a sermon. I don't want you next to me until you love those who are made in my image and particularly those who are your brother and sister in Christ because they belong to me. Now, is this really hard for us to understand? The Bible tells us that to be regenerated, to be born again, is to be adopted by God as his son. Women are sons. They get all the inheritance of the firstborn son. So it's dignity. You're adopted by God. He is your father. Is it really a shock to any of us that God despises his children, hating one another and murdering one another? Is there any parent who has any difficulty understanding this? Does it not pierce the heart of a parent when his children squabble, let alone murder each other? How do you think Adam and Eve felt when Cain murdered Abel? God says, don't tell me you love me if you hate your brother. Because how can you love me whom you have not seen when you hate your brother who you see every single Sunday morning or every time you go to bed? God won't put up with it. God will not put up with us Resenting, being bitter against, and hating men and women who are made in his image. And you say, oh, yeah, but you don't know my husband. You'd hate him if you were yoked to him. You were one with him. My whole life has been a tragedy because of my husband. I say, what do you think Jesus' life was? He was perfect and he was yoked to us. You say, yeah, but he didn't have my husband for a husband. And the Bible says that you don't have the perfect vision and perfect understanding and perfect holiness of God. You don't know the half of what's wrong with your husband. But much more likely, you don't know the thousandth of yourself. God is our Father. We are brothers and sisters. God says He will not have us hating each other. Now, at this point, there are a couple of end runs that we give ourselves to. One of the end runs is we say, well, you know what? I'm going to go to a church where I won't hate anyone. And so having the secrets of our hearts exposed in a family of God, which is what a church is, it's the household of faith, the pillar and foundation of the truth, as the truth opens us up under the preaching of the word in our small group Bible studies, we say, to heck with this, I'm going somewhere else. And why? Well, because the secrets of our hearts have been exposed, and we hate that because it's humiliating. 
And so we say, you know, isn't there a church around where this business of having the secrets of our hearts opened isn't like practiced? You know, I mean, some place where I can go and, and not have pain. <laughs> I remember a dentist at my last church telling me one Sunday his board he was on was just filled with fighting amongst the members. And one day, finally, he took his stand. He was a man that never took a stand for anything, any reason, any time, any, 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 any. But one day he took a stand. And his stand was, I deal with this kind of conflict and pain every single day at the office, and I will not deal with it in the church. <laughs> so I gave him a shot of Novocaine. I didn't really. And it wasn't Lawrence. So what we do is seeing that our hearts do call people fools and seeing that we do get angry and we are jealous and we are envious and we are bitter against one another. and We do have a whole pack pack of criticisms about one another. And there are certain people that we've written off seeing all of this instead of repenting and coming to Christ naked and asking him to clothe us in his righteousness. We decide we will dig our own cisterns. We will make our own fire. We will create our own righteousness. And what is the righteousness? The righteousness is finding a church where none of this will ever be spoken of and where you don't ever need to worry about intimacy making you an obvious sinner. And that's what happens, guys. That's what the megachurch movement is built on. What does Bill Hybel say? They went door to door and asked people what they wanted in a church. And that's a good way to create a church. And what people said again and again and again is we want anonymity. Now, why would a sinful man or a sinful woman want anonymity in their church? Because they don't want to have to give and to receive forgiveness of sins. Do you understand? They don't want to confess they're a sinner and have to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And they certainly don't want other people coming to them and saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because it's hard saying which is more humiliating. I mean, have you ever had to say you are forgiven? It's like worse than having to reverse your direction when you're driving a car. Everything in me struggles against saying, you are forgiven. You know why? I don't know. I can't understand it. But I hate forgiving other people. And you say, well, you're a nasty dude. That just means that you don't want to forgive them. Now, I don't think it's that I don't want to forgive them. But I think if I really do forgive them, I have to look at all that I need to be forgiven of. And what I'd rather do is say to them, What? It's what we always say. Oh, it's nothing. We never say you're forgiven. We say, forget about it. It's nothing. In other words, it's the boxer saying to the other boxer when he climbs in the ring, I won't hit you hard if you don't hit me hard. <laughs> A trainer in New York says that's what he has to beat out of every boxer. This is why that if he doesn't hit him hard, he won't hit him hard. And so somebody says, will you forgive me? And we say, it's nothing. Forget about it, you know? And so we go find a church where nobody ever says, will you forgive me? And nobody ever is hurt by us. We show up 
or like that 1984 commercial for Apple? You know, and then you climb in your car and you got your makeup on and your children have the brill cream mousse in their hair. And, and there's no intimacy. And because there's no intimacy, there is no failure. And because there's no failure, there's no asking for forgiveness and there's no giving forgiveness. And that is not a church. What it is, is it's a religious organization, non-profit, 501 or 503C4 or something like that. What is it? 501C3. So that's one way we try to subvert what Jesus is saying here. He says, leave your gift at the altar, go and make it right, do it quickly, don't wait. We say, I'm going to find a church where I never have to do it where the sermons are always about the sins in Washington, D.C. and Hollywood and never here, and where they certainly, there are enough people that he doesn't look at me while he preaches, and where I don't have to have any intimacy, and to, and to heck with those small groups. I mean, what is that about? I mean, isn't it enough to be in a church where he looks at me as he preaches? Do I have to then go to a small group where everybody looks at me while I talk? I mean, my sins will be out there on the floor, blood caked on the wall, incommoding the pastor's <laughs> I wanted a church, not an abattoir. It's a Monty Python sketch, but it works. <laughs> and so that's one way. Then the other way is this. We become completely committed to peace and to the absence of calling people fools, and to the absence of anger. And we become a betrayer of God in his word, a pacifist, if you will. And we say, all right, I've learned my lesson. No more conflict. Never. No how. Never. All right. And we begin to trade on truth and love for the sake of peace. That's the other way we do it. One way, we avoid intimacy. We find a place where we can be religious without being broken. The other way is we learn the lesson and we cultivate a life that is devoid of anything approximating true peace. It's a life of cleanliness and it's a life where we're willing to do anything to have that peace. And the first thing that goes is God's truth. And so if... Somebody stands up in public and says, I hate fundamentalists. We say, I'm not a fundamentalist. But when we listen to how they describe fundamentalists, every single thing they say is true of us. But, you know, Christians shouldn't be so judgmental. I mean, don't you agree with that? Don't we have just about enough of judgmentalism in this country? Especially the judgmentalism of people that don't put their little children in booster seats. See, I mean, you see what's going on? There's no decrease in judgmentalism in the country. All that's happened is 
Judgment against the things that God says he hates has ceased. Judgment against the things that petty people hate has increased. We've traded one true morality based on the character of God for another that's based on the latest fad in morality. Do you understand this? It's, it's litter, it's smoking, it's booster seats, it's carbon emissions, it's... And I'm making fun of it. I don't mind. It's ludicrous. You say, well, there he goes again. First he's for beating animals, and, and now he's for blowing carbon out the rear of his car. And that guy just isn't in touch. And it's like, I'm bored. <laughs> you guys, when you give up God's laws, you get an infinite number of petty laws. And so what we do is we say, I'm going to be at peace. And so you end up sucking in all the petty laws and you once again become that 1984 robot, you know, and you mouth all the public morality that like is getting in, you know, legislated today. And, and you become one more tiny brain devoid of an original thought, let alone a godly one. And you have your peace. And what is your peace? Your peace is hatred for God. That's what your peace is. Because the minute sodomy comes up, you call it gay rights or, 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 or civil unions or some euphemism. The minute abortion comes up, you, you talk about personal choice and you say that you have a personal, private, religious commitment on it, but that you certainly won't speak to them in the classroom about it because it's not civil. And in the church, if somebody begins to not just despise others, but to gossip and slander them, as an elder, you won't say anything against it, because after all, the Bible says, live at peace. And, and so you'll tolerate it, and at home, if your children are punching each other in the face, you'll never stop it, because there's a good game on television. And you're at peace. You're above it. And that's the other way we cop out on this. Peacemaking is a dirty, grungy, bloody, messy, humble job. And it is not for you to say that God's truth doesn't matter so that you can have something that you label peace with the people all around you. And you go through life having all men speak well of you. And Jesus says explicitly, beware when all men speak well of you. And you say, but, but, but I can't go. I don't. I can't. What I you know, and I say, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about his glory. His glory is at rest on those who bear his image. And when you defend an unborn child, you're defending the image of God. You can't trade on that. You may not trade on that. It is him. You go through life saying this truth doesn't matter and this truth doesn't matter and this truth doesn't matter. 
And you're trading on everything. You sit at a church and say, it doesn't matter whether I'm intimate with other people. I can just sit here and, and live my life every single way that you seek to be at peace at man, other than the path that Jesus calls you to, is nothing but rebellion and sin. And every pastor and every elder and every church that facilitates your rebellion is nothing but a false church. Jesus is clear. He says, it's not just when you shed the blood, but it's also when you hate and it's also when you're angry. So here's what to do. He says, leave your gift at the altar and go make things right. And any devious method you have of avoiding making things right by saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry. And having other people say to you, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And you say, I forgive you. Any devious way you have of avoiding that is rebellion against the plain command of Christ and the word of God. That's it. Every woman here knows what kind of husband she wants. She wants a husband who will leave his gift at the altar and who will talk sweet to her in the kitchen. What does the book say? It says love begins in the kitchen. Sex, love, sex. Okay? Begins in the kitchen. Why? Because we're supposed to be people who are intimate with each other. Who love each other. Who are sinners. Who are angry. Who say, you fool. And who in that love each other because of the grace of Christ. That's what it's all about. Really devious ways of avoiding forgiving and being forgiven. Devious ways of avoiding that are really devious ways of avoiding the glory of Jesus Christ and making it all about me. You see, you understand how that works. We always want to look good and we never like it when Jesus looks good. So, okay, I'm done. What does this mean? This means forget all this bloodshed, repent of it and lead our country to repent of it and take an active part for heaven's sakes. Okay, take an active part. You haven't lived until you've had women throw things I won't mention at you as you pick it over at Planned Parenthood. You don't have to watch Band of Brothers. Just show up there. It'll happen. Okay, build your house so that you can have your elderly relatives live with you. Adopt special needs children. Adopt African kids. Do everything you can to avoid shedding literal blood. Don't be a pacifist. And then over here, find a place where all of your warts and moles are horrifyingly obvious to everyone. Find that place to be your church. Okay? And then forgive and give forgiveness. Let's pray.